Thank you, Heather. Good day, church family. It is great to be with you as we dive into James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Would you pray with me? Father, we're just, um, I'm in awe of you and um, your mercies that are new every day. I thank you for the truth of the gospel. And I thank you, God, that um, that you have given us your spirit that indwells us, that uh, gives us wisdom and courage and understanding of your word. And God, I pray, this, I pray today that, um, Spirit of God, that you would guide my words, that I would stand behind your holy word as we talk about some difficult subjects. And I pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified. And I pray that the church would be edified. And I pray these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, church family, we are, uh, I've titled the sermon, Two Types of Wisdom. The wheels seem to be falling off in this great country of ours. And many Christians don't seem to know how to make biblical sense of it or how to make a biblical response. Generally speaking, we're way too quick to speak way too quick to anger, and we're still too slow to listen. We are partial and opinionated, and we're polarized, and it's sickening. Christians, white Christians especially, are fighting the wrong battles rather than offering hope through the gospel. Much of what I see posted on Facebook and Instagram is angry, it's judgmental, and it's lacking mercy and lacking understanding. We all have tribes that we belong to and that we resonate with. A biological family would be a tribe, a high school graduating class, a college alma mater. Maybe those who you golf with or work out with are a tribe of yours. Maybe those who are part of a denomination that you belong to or a political party. Your tribe could be factions inside that political party, like, um, like um, guns rights or environmentalism. Another tribe is ethnicity and heritage. You know, God made us this way. There are certain groups of people with certain interests and commonalities that draw us together. And that's, that's natural. It's not wrong. And there's other groups of people, other tribes, if you will, that we just don't understand. And maybe, just maybe, we have a wrong view or paradigm towards them. Oftentimes, it's us, whoever us is, against them, whoever them is. We are more impartial to those we know and understand and tend to be partial and judgmental towards those that we don't understand or the other side, if you will. God is not partial, praise be to God. He sees all sin as sin, and he sees all sinners saved by grace as sons and daughters. There's no distinction between human beings. Black and white, Jew and Greek, American and Palestinian. 
Every human being is created in the image of God and bears his likeness. Every human being. Every human being, therefore, should be treated equally and with impartiality. There's some super hard things happening in our culture today. And on top of an already divided country because of the circumstances surrounding COVID-19, now we have the clash of races that is exploding in front of us in ways it hasn't exploded since 1968. Racism is alive and well today. And racism has roots that go back over 400 years of, of uh, people of color um, experiencing injustice and oppression. And what's confusing for me, actually, and I know it's confusing for you, and it's complicated, is that it's the violent response to the recent killings of innocent black men. And I want to say this right up front, that sin is sin, and it's running rampant in America today. And there's only one remedy to sin. In many black and brown communities around this country, and in diverse ethnic communities that stand with them, the shootings and the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd confirm the lines in a popular 1980s song. That's just the way it is, and some things never change. I think that's the lament of those of color who are made in the image of God. I want to make something clear right up front before we drive into the Scriptures, is that personally, I can't and I won't take a stand with Black Lives Matter. But I do believe that black lives matter and that we have treated our fellow image bearers of color as if they, have, they are not equals, as if they are something less. Maybe you haven't and maybe I haven't. But generally speaking, in this country, for hundreds of years, they have been second-class citizens. Yes, all lives matter. But we're instructed as Christians to give an extra measure of care and concern and mercy to the oppressed and the marginalized. Do you personally know a black man or woman? If so, do you know their story? Do you know their parents' story? Do you know their grandparents' story? Do you know their great-grandparents' story? And when you hear the, somebody say that black lives matter, why is it necessary to give a quick retort that all lives matter? As if that isn't obvious. Are you quicker to condemn the sinful writing that we see all over this country right now? Or the systematic or the systemic racism that still exists in our country? Do your words whether spoken or written or posted, deepen the faith and purify the hope of other Christians? 
or do, the, or do your words make them more angry and more anxious? When you are poked with a choice to take sides, do you take a side? Do you weep with mercy and compassion for those who are marginalized and oppressed? My prayer today is that we would be in awe of God's mercy towards you and I who have been saved from the power and the penalty of sin. Further, when confronted with difficult situations involving those who may not be in your tribe and in whom you may not fully understand, I pray that you would seek to understand their pain and extend mercy to them. I pray the Holy Spirit might remind you of the Father's love for you today, while at the same time exposing the possibility of partiality in your heart. So I pray that if you're offended today, it would be a conviction of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, not my words. Last week, Jones, James, Jones, you know Jones, his brother, James' his brother, Jones. Uh, James uh, wrote about the tongue and how, how this small member of our body can be a spark of destruction or a spark of blessing. And he continues that vein in verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James asks, a rhetorical question. Are you wise and understanding? Particularly, he's asking this question particularly as it relates to our attitude, our speech, and our actions towards other people. So far in the book of James, we've, we've received the following instructions from James that all have to do with wisdom. He said, be quick to hear, slow to listen. <laughs> quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is wisdom. He told us in verses, chapter 1, verses, uh, uh, verse 19, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the implanted word that can save your souls. This is wisdom. He told us that religion that is pure and undefiled cares about the helpless and the hopeless. This is wisdom. We are to show no partiality. This is wisdom or prejudice. Wisdom understands that mercy triumphs over judgment. Wisdom has a faith that is active, chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. We are to be controlled in what we say, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is wisdom. Are you wise and understanding? He says, it will be, uh, we'll, they'll know it or you'll know it by your works. He says, show it by your works or your conduct in the meekness that comes from wisdom. And I'm going to repeat this several times today as Jake repeated it last week because it's important when we teach through the book of James that has 50-some imperatives. The life that James is describing is a reflex that comes from a changed heart, not from a set of rules. This life that James is incursion is towards is born out of heart change. 
It's a life that's so saturated by the gospel of Jesus Christ that the wisdom from above controls us and bleeds out of us at every turn. This life that James is referring to, if you will, is shown by in the meekness that comes from wisdom. And what comes to mind when you hear the word meek? I think for a lot of it, it's, it's the, the word weak. That meek is weak, but that's not the thrust here. Listen this, to this description of Jesus as he prepared to um, ride into Jerusalem for his coronation, where he would be crowned with thorns and he would be brutally beaten and hung on a cross. Matthew 21.5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble or gentle, meek, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus was anything but weak. Meekness means gentleness or humility. The best definition I've ever heard of meekness is power under control. It's setting aside the ability and maybe even the right to destroy instead of bringing peace. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness or self-interest. The meek person is not occupied with self at all. Meekness lays his life down for the sake of others. Men, has any men's ministry ever told you that you should aspire to meekness? That you should strive and aspire to serving your family? Yes, you've got the power to crush them with words and with other means. But pray that the Lord would grow you into a meek husband and a meek dad who puts your family's interests and comforts um, ahead of yourselves. Now, in the following verses, James contrasts two types of wisdom, one that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, and the other that comes from above. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast in the lie that you are wise and understanding. Because your actions prove differently. Your words prove dif differently. Um, Jake gave us an important reminder last week that what comes out of our mouths is what's ultimately in our heart. That's what Jesus said. If you say you have wisdom and have bitter jealousy in your heart, you're, you are deceived. What is bitter jealousy? It's a, a person with bitter jealousy or envy, if you will, wants what others have and will do anything they can to get what other people have. This, this attitude prevents us from celebrating other people's wins. And it actually um, keeps us from grieving in their failures. It actually causes us at times to rejoice in their failures. Wanting what other people have creates an unhealthy culture. And I've personally wrestled with this. It's a wrestle in my flesh today, actually. 
I have developed ill feelings towards people who have what I want. And it's usually gifts. It's not cars for me. Been there, done that. It's usually not houses. Um, it's people who communicate better than me. It's people who are more likable than me. It's people that have more success than me. That I find myself um, being, uh, being bitterly jealous. And I've got to check my heart. And the Lord graciously convicts me of that. And then I'm reminded of who I am in Christ. And that I don't have to go down that road. I've seen this in many people who are white and privileged. Like me and you. Like most of me and you who are listening. We lament about people who are on welfare and taking advantage of the system. And there are some. And maybe there's a lot. But there's a sense of jealousy there that when you are working so hard to earn a living, to earn what you have, and you perceive others are living off the system. It's a form of jealousy. It's a form of bitter jealousy. And then James goes on to say that if you, if you say you have wisdom and have selfish ambition in your heart, you're deceived. What is selfish ambition? First of all, ambition or aspirations isn't always bad. We're to aspire to a lot of things in God's Word. I'm called to aspire to love Nancy as Christ loves the church. I'm called to aspire to steward the resources that God has blessed me with. But James is referring to selfish ambition or selfish aspirations. These are self-seeking. This is motivated by prideful desire to protect and promote self over others. It's motivated by a desire to protect and promote self over others. Let me give you an illustration and keep your ears open while I give you this illustration because the word that I use might be offensive to some, but it's an illustration. Nationalism says that we put our country first at all costs. That we will promote and protect our country at the expense of other nations. This may or may not be a good policy for the nation. I have an opinion and I'm not going to share it because it's not important. Here's my point. Christians who operate his or her life um, um, under this principle is acting counter to the gospel. The gospel gives selflessly and has a cost that came with it. The gospel says that we give up our life, that we die and we take up our cross that we lose our life so that we can save it, that we lay down our life for others. But when we serve and act and give while asking the question ahead of time, what's the ROI? Is there a return on investment? Is this going to somehow benefit me? We ask the question, what's in it for me? This is unwise. This is wisdom that comes from, uh, that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. James tells us that operating our personal lives in this manner, promoting and protecting ourselves at the expense of others, is foolish. 
is what Paul refers to in Galatians 5 as the works of the flesh. And this earthly, selfishly ambitious wisdom blinds us, actually, to the hurts and needs of people around us. This type of self-perfecting, excuse me, self-protecting and self-promoting wisdom produces anything but peace. Verse 16 tells us what it produces. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Disorder is instability and confusion and disturbance. Every vile practice is everything that's wrong with this world. Building our kingdom and our lives while at the same time shutting out those who might stand in the way of our comfort and our rights is, is man's wisdom, not wisdom from above, and it sprouts out of fleshly desires. And this type of selfish, jealous life brings chaos and disorder in every vile practice. Is there anything like that going on in our country today? The gospel is the answer. James is now done with showing us what earthly wisdom looks like. Now he helps us recognize what wisdom from above looks like. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wisdom from above has distinct characteristics and it produces distinct fruit. Last week in James chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, James asked two rhetorical questions and he made a statement. He asked, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Wisdom from above first changes the heart. And then our actions and our words follow. Our actions and our words are a reflection or a reflex, if you, if you will, of what is already in our heart. God's godly wisdom is, um, is evidence. It's, it's proved, if you will, in good behavior. The wisdom from above is rooted in the gospel and is produced in the heart. It's not a to-do list. I'll say that again. Also, please note that we will never fully arrive. That's why, in one sense, the rhetorical question, that we'll never have full wisdom until we're in glory. And like all of Christian life, that at the moment we were saved, we have a new direction, and we have new desires. And one day we will arrive at perfection, where there'll be no more sin. We'll be rid of this flesh. We'll have new redeemed bodies. And now James shows us here uh, the characteristics of a life governed by wisdom from above. And he lays them out in three different groupings that are hung on one word. And that one word is pure. Wisdom from above is first pure. And what is purity? What is pure? It's the soil of the heart. 
A pure heart has a primary ambition or agenda to fulfill, if you were, or to live out or to obey the two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. It's pure. It has one primary um, and holy ambition or agenda to love God and to love others. Secondly, um, a pure heart invites or allows the Holy Spirit to, to search us and to convict us. And then thirdly, a pure heart is clear or innocent in the matters of sin. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means that after we're convicted of sin, that we repent and we seek reconciliation with those in whom we wronged. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7.11 about being clear or innocent. He says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. He's talking about a godly grief that is produced by conviction of the Holy Spirit. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. That's, that's, that's repentance. That's reconciliation. To clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in that matter. So he starts off saying that wisdom from above is first pure. Then it's peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. Peaceable means peace-loving. It loves peace. Some of you aren't going to like it, but it's actually rooted in the word Pacific. That it actually is um, where the word pacifist comes from. That we're peace-loving. And this uh, peace-loving attitude uh, overflows from the peace that we have with our Creator. And it flows, um, and it's extended to others that we, uh, as we'll see at the end here, that we are to sow seeds of peace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, that blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. I want to make a distinguishing uh, point here. He doesn't say um, peacekeepers. He says peacemakers. You see, if your goal in life is to keep the peace, um, there, there's going to be um, rampant wickedness everywhere. If there's no law, we've got to have law. Um, there's got to be, um, there's got to be um, punishment for sin. So a, a, uh, a true peace uh, keeper is actually a false peace maker. And we're called to be a peacemaker, to make peace. Gentle, considerate, fair, equitable. Open to reason, he says. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually camp on this one for a little while. Open to reason means easily convinced. Somebody that's wise um, is easily convinced. Not, not a pushover, but they're open to dialogue. They forbear easily. They seek to understand others rather than seeking to be understood. Think about the current racial tensions. We've not seen this type of unrest in this country since 1968. 
What's your response to it? Honestly, ask yourself. Discuss with your family or friends. Talk about it in your community group. What's your response to it? We all have a response. And what motivates and what informs that response? Are you open to reason with a tribe that you are not familiar with? Are you open to hearing about the story and the reality of 400 years of racism? Or are you quick to to respond that all lives matter? Of course they do. Are you quick to say that racism goes both ways? while at the same time never personally experiencing hate and partiality. Are you honestly seeking to understand and increase in empathy for those who are not in your tribe? Or are you more prone to dismiss them as simply needing to forgive those who wronged them and their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents? Have you ever been caught in sin and received counsel from a wise friend or pastor? Here's what a wise friend or pastor will do when you you acknowledge your sin. We all have sin. Wisdom never says just stop it. Knock it off. Wisdom always gets to the heart. Wisdom wants to know what the root of the sin is. Why are you acting the way you're acting? What's behind your rage? What have you experienced? What are you failing to believe that's truth? And what lies are you believing that are false? I've never had a problem getting a good table in a restaurant, never been asked to sit in another room. I've never had to teach my kids how to avoid getting hurt because of their skin color. I don't know what it's like to live in northern Colorado as a man or woman of color and feel like I need to take my mask off when I walk into King Supers for fear of what people might think I'm going to do. Maybe it's the utter horror of George Floyd's death. Or the fact that it's coupled with the senseless killing of Ahmad Arbery. Maybe it's the unsettling times we're living in today, but something is truly different about what's happening in our country. And more importantly, there's something different that's happening in me. And I pray in you. I'm realizing anew how much I am part of the problem. And I'm realizing this problem runs 400 years deep. It encompasses centuries of people of my heritage and my skin color taking advantage of others solely because of their skin color. And while I didn't participate in slave trade, the events of the last week have left me realizing that remnants of that structure still exist in this great country that we call America and actually all around the world. 
I'm realizing that nothing will substantially change in my world unless I'm willing to make more changes in how I run my life and how I speak up. Even deeper, I'm going to have to change how my heart is set if there's going to be real change in me that affects any kind of real change in this world. And the entire church, this church, and Christ church worldwide will have to do the same. I had a friend tell me last week as we were talking about this subject that we will never understand as, as, um, as privileged white people living in northern Colorado, we're never going to understand what, what people of color feel. It's like, a, it's like a husband, it's like me um, or, or you, men, um, trying to understand um, what your wife went through um, in her delivery, maybe a C-section. We'll never, we can try to understand, and we should try to understand, but it's like two weeks after the baby is born, there's this, you know, she worked hard to deliver that baby through lots of pain, and now there's this beautiful baby, and two weeks later, she's still in pain. She starts getting on your nerves because she's still in pain rather than you understanding, seeking to understand her pain. As Christians, we can take the high road of listening rather than speaking. Seeking to understand the plight of the marginalized as we listen to the response. We can allow and we should allow their response to drive us to mercy and repentance. Wisdom shaped by a pure and transformed heart is peace-loving, it's gentle, and it seeks to understand the plight and the pain of others. Next, it's full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy is kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted. That's That's what mercy is. And it's joined with a desire to help them. It's love and action. It grows out of a peace-loving heart that seeks to understand the pain, the suffering, the anger of others. Mercy listens, and it seeks to understand, and then it acts, and it speaks. And as we grow in understanding of, God's, of, the, of, of the mercy that God hemorrhaged for you and I, then and only then will we start to bleed mercy on other people. When we were hopeless and hopeless, stuck in our sin, he didn't simply say that you got what you deserved or get over it. It's been a couple of thousand years. He knew our plight. He knew our eternal destination. And he acted. He came. He emptied himself. He died a brutal death on the cross. James tells us that this type of wisdom from above is not simply merciful. He says it's full of mercy. Are you full of mercy? I don't find myself full of mercy. What comes out of you when you are poked and confronted with the difficult situations in America today? That's what you're full of. 
What comes out when you're poked? Do you have an automatic and unhelpful retort that all lives matter? When it's obvious um, to, that all lives should matter? That every human being is made in the image of God? Saying that all lives matter when there is a specific group of lives who have been oppressed and mistreated is like a fire truck with its lights on driving down Crescent Drive past my house. And I yell out and I say, hey, what about my house? Don't you care about it? And the guy in the back of the truck yells, yes, your house matters, but the house down the street is on fire. And there's a group of people that are on fire. And we should care for them. What are you full of? Are you mindful of God's mercy to you when you were without hope? Are you full of mercy when you hear about racism in America today? What's your reflex? Is it skepticism and saying something like, isn't it time for them to stand on their own two feet and forgive the wrongs of 400 years ago? Or do you have the immediate emotion of, that's driven by mercy that seeks to, under, to understand? Over the last six months, not the last six days, um, and I can't explain why this happened other than it's the grace of God to me, that Nancy and I started watching movies about the plight of, of people of color. Uh, we watched a movie called Best of Enemies and Just Mercy. We watched a, um, uh, the story of Harriet Tobman that was a part of the Underground Railroad. She was a black woman. She was a slave that escaped, and she rescued people from slavery. And just this last week, we watched an Amazon original called uh, I'm Not Your Negro. And what it's done for me, and, um, and if you're lacking mercy, if you're lacking compassion, um, it's actually something I would encourage you to do. Um, understand it. Seek to understand it. Um, sit down and have coffee with a person of color. Um, hear their story. And after telling us that wisdom from above is full of mercy, he says it's, it's full of good fruits. And this, is, this brings us to um, Galatians 5.22. It reminds us of the fruit of the Spirit. Then finally, he says, wisdom is impartial and sincere. Impartial in this context means it's not doubting. It doesn't doubt. It's unwavering. And sincere means it's without hypocrisy. It's genuine. It's heartfelt. It's a wisdom that indicates wholehearted faith, a faith without wavering. And then finally in verse 18, James gives a final description of what wisdom from above looks like and what it produces. Wisdom from above knows what to do. It has an increasing desire to do it and the courage to act upon it. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who embody the wisdom from above are peacemakers who sow seeds of peace. And this act of wisdom from above produces a harvest, a harvest of righteousness. James is describing a Christian here who has been so overcome by the mercy of God and the crazy truth that we are at peace with our maker that it gives us an aim in life to extend this peace to other people. 
And this peace, first and foremost, is extended through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only news that can bring eternal peace and joy. This is the hope for the chaos that we find ourselves in. Gospel proclamation is our aim. It's the aim of the church. Yet we are called to serve and care for and have mercy on the marginalized and the oppressed. I'm going to say two words that might make you squirm. They shouldn't, but they do. And I understand why they do, actually. It's social justice. Social justice has got a bad name in the Christian church. And it's because that there are churches out there who care only about the temporal needs of fellow image bearers. And they think that the gospel is primarily shown through action and deed and not through word. They're wrong. The gospel is certainly to be lived out by bringing temporal peace to others through social justice. But true and lasting peace is found only in believing the good news. We are saved by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I want to implore you, church, to allow the word of God to examine you, to encourage you, to remind you of his mercy towards you, and to allow him to convict you in areas of partiality and where you're not open to reason, where you're not quick to extend mercy and to be a peacemaker. This peace, this peace is sown by Christians. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit who bleed mercy and not bleed, and they don't bleed judgment on the marginalized. We can't legislate peace. We certainly can't elect peace, but we can sow seeds of peace. And so my prayer is for all of us, brothers and sisters, is that we stand apart from the culture. Not with the culture, but apart from the culture. And that we would be full of mercy, open to reason, zealous to sow seeds of gospel peace in these hard, hard times in America. And I pray that we would draw near together and extend mercy and peace specifically in this time to people of color. People who are hurting in ways that you and I will never imagine. Please pray with me. Father, we bless you. God, I thank you that, um, that you are an impartial God. And I thank you that one day in heaven with you, there'll be, um, uh, every, it'll be made up of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And I thank you that we'll be one people, that there'll be no partiality. There'll be no prejudice. There'll be none of that type of sin. No more suffering on the other end of that. And no more death. And so God, thank you that uh, when we were uh, yet sinners, by your mercy, you made us alive in Christ Jesus. And God, the blood that you hemorrhaged for us, God, I pray that we would, um, we would just bleed that mercy on others. And that we would be quick 
to hear and slower to speak and slower to anger. Help us be open to reason. And thank you, Father. Thank you, Daddy, that you're so patient with us, that you're so loving. And I pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Love you, church family.